0: We should be very careful about artificial intelligence. We are summoning the demon. Hey, welcome back to Babylon Singularity. I am your host, Peter Herder. In today's episode, we're going to continue on in the Olivet Discourse from Luke 21. I wanted to start in Luke because Luke says that his gospel is the most orderly. If you open up to Luke 1, he's telling Theophilus why he's writing this gospel account. And one of the things that he says about the reasons why he wanted to write this gospel account is because he wanted to give an orderly account. So, that doesn't mean the other gospel accounts are disorderly. It just means that Luke went out of his way to be orderly and to try to put things into order. And he also says that he has followed all these things closely. And so, by the Holy Spirit, Luke is giving an orderly account of the teachings of Jesus. There are three Gospels that are called synoptic Gospels. These are uh, Matthew Mark and Luke. These three Gospels tell many of the same stories. These three Gospels tell the 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 account of Jesus's life and ministry, his death and resurrection from different perspectives and each of them have their own flavor and emphasis, each account has its own language, even though each of the gospel witnesses saw the same thing, saw the life of Jesus. They all had their own individual perspectives and their own style and their own personality through which the Holy Spirit conveyed the life of Jesus through the Word of God. And if there are slight differences, all of these all of these uh, differences in the accounts can be aligned and understood with a little bit of effort. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to put in a a little bit of effort to understand all of that discourse, beginning with Luke, eventually getting into Matthew and then maybe touching Mark just a little bit, because I think Luke's is the most orderly. And I think Matthew's is the most full, full of detail, full of kind of, I would say maybe rich with, Detail and um, uh, meaning, uh, and so I think Matthew's gospel account of the Olivet Discourse is, is a is a is is a key one as well. Uh, Marks is definitely a key one. Obviously, all three gospels are key. Um, Marks, I would say, is maybe the most maybe the most fundamentally basic a lot of times mark the gospel of mark is he's he's real straight to the point when when describing things um, and he kind of boils things down in real power-punched like mark's the mark's the like the the power puncher who's going to put a lot of power into the short statements that that he that he makes mark and matthew's a gospel account of the Olivet Discourse are largely similar. And so if, you know, when I get into to, to Matthew, Mark will, will already kind of be baked into um, that gospel because Mark and Matthew are the most similar of the four gospels. It's Mark and Matthew are very similar. Luke's um, one of the three synoptic gospels, but his perspective, his approach is a little different. And then, then John's gospel is a is a is a is an entirely um, standalone account of the the disciple that that Jesus loved, and and so his intimacy, um, uh, his intimate understanding of. Of the of the master and his uh, closeness to Jesus through his life, um, just just takes on a whole different um, feel and reality and uh, than than the other three. So it stands alone. And so so with Luke, you have an orderly account. With Matthew, you have a rich account. With Mark, you have a to the point, you know, power packed. Um, account, and then John, you have the intimate closeness to Jesus account, and so that that's largely how I understand the the four different gospels. You could probably say a lot more than I, what I just said right there, but generally, that's 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 my understanding uh, how I see the four different gospels, and so when I'm want to understand what Jesus is teaching in. The, the disciples in the Olivet Discourse, I want to begin with the orderly account, the one that that is going to um, paint the picture of what Jesus is saying in uh, the the clearest, most orderly way. And that's where I'm going to begin, and then I'm going to take the kind of fundamental framework structure that I understand from the orderly gospel, and then plug in the other gospel accounts, which would be uh, Matthew and Mark. And so, you you caught me here in episode, whatever this is, 15, um, still um, taking in the account of the Olivet Discourse in, in Luke 21. We spent a lot of time in Luke twenty-one in the, in the last episode, and, and we, we uh, addressed a few things. And I want to kind of circle the wagons and approach some of the same material, but in a in, in a deep deeper way. And what I mean by that is when Jesus is prophesying in the Olivet discourse, and you see this in all three gospel accounts, he's addressing two events he he's a, addressing when jerusalem would be destroyed and he's addressing when the son of man would appear in the clouds and all the earth would mourn the nations would mourn i mean the ones that don't don't want to see him right I mean, the ones that do want to see him uh, You know, it'll be the greatest day of all time, the greatest day in history. The last day in history will be the greatest day in history when the Son of Man returns in the clouds of Maranatha. And so for us to understand that there are actually two events that Jesus is prophesying, the destruction of Jerusalem and the return of Jesus, we need to understand well, why why would why would the destruction of Jerusalem be so important? The prophecy in Daniel nine tells us about seventy weeks that there was a a, a time period that God had decreed of seventy weeks, which are uh, seven year time periods so not the normal week but seven the because the, the 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 more accurate translation of that prophecy is that god has decreed 77s well seven what so we 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 translated it weeks but really they're weeks of years they're seven year periods so 490 years basically 500 years are decreed to accomplish God's agenda. We visited this in a couple of episodes ago where we discussed the completion of the transgression. That the Jewish people would fully transgress the law. Moses couldn't even get down Mount Sinai without shattering the Ten Commandments, literally throwing them down and shattering the Ten Commandments. That was the beginning. That wasn't the end of it. That was that was the start. Moses receives the Ten Commandments written in tablets of stone. He is bringing them down the mountain. I'm sure, you know, <laughs> probably pretty... Uh, pretty excited about presenting what he just experienced to his people. Uh, obviously, I, I'm guessing, you know, in his mind, he's thinking like, oh, this is going to be great. I can't, you know, cannot wait for this moment when I'm going to show, you know, God's people his law written in tablets of stone, you know, and he's dreaming about this. then he hears this strange noise and he's talking to Joshua and, Joshua's like, I think they might be going to war. I'm like, no, it's not war. Nope. They're worshiping a golden cow. Hmm. Great start. Yeah. Got the Ten Commandments. Can't quite get off the mountain before they've forged a golden cow and are worshiping it and saying, this is Yahweh. This is the God that got us out of Egypt and brought us here. Moses throws the tablets down, we all know the story. Well, that was just the beginning. We know the story of how the Jewish people came to the edge of the promised land and shrunk back. They spent 40 years wandering the desert. An entire generation would die in the desert because they transgressed the law. But that wasn't the end of it either. They entered the promised land under the leadership of Yeshua, Joshua. But their track record really didn't improve. In fact, 10 of the 12 tribes were completely wiped out by the Assyrians, completely destroyed and dispersed. That left two of the 12 which then were conquered by Babylon, expelled from the land for 70 years, returned to the land, and that really didn't end the transgression of the law either. They continued to transgress the law. God would send them his friends, his messengers. They would not want to hear what God had to say to them and they would largely punish, stone, and execute God's friends that he sent them. This was an escalating reality. God remembered every one of his messengers that he sent. To the Jewish people he remembered every time they rejected not just the messenger but the one who sent the message how they spitefully treated the messenger and sometimes murdered the messenger this is the backstory this is the story of the 70 weeks that were dis- decreed to finish the transgression to complete the the transgression. And the, the gospel of Luke is rich with this reality. And if you just page through the, the the chapters of the gospel of Luke, you will see this is firmly in Jesus's mind as he's speaking to the Jewish people. So, it's important to understand that there was an agenda, that God had an agenda. And one of the things on the agenda list was for the transgression to be completed and how did the jewish people finally complete the transgression it was in the same way that atonement was made for sin another item on god's agenda list in which 70 weeks were decreed 77s were decreed to finish the transgression, to complete the transgression, and to make atonement, to make an end to sin. Well, that all happened in the rejection of Jesus, the arrest, mockery, trial, and ultimate crucifixion of the Son of God. That was the completion of Of the transgression, there is no higher way to complete the transgression than to crucify the Son of God. There's not. There's nothing left on the list after that. You've completed it. You've finished what was started at the foot of Sinai with the forging of the cow. That was the beginning. It began with a golden cow. It was completed with the Son of God hanging on a cross, breathing his last, saying, it is finished. What is finished? The transgression was finished. The atonement was finished. It was all summed up in the glorious death and victorious resurrection of the Son of God. So you're probably like, yeah, right. Show me where that is in the scriptures. Well, we spent some time in in Daniel 9, about the 77s, so I'm not going to go back there. I'm going to pick this up in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus is giving a series of woes to unrepentant cities. So we'll we'll start off here in verse 13. We're going to spend our time in Luke, because I I don't necessarily want to mix and match different gospel accounts. I want to deal with one gospel account, and then I'm going to deal, I'm going to dig into another gospel account, but I want to be squarely in Luke so that we understand that in the heart and mind of the gospel writer, that this is a fluid, continuous narrative that the gospel writer is telling us this isn't something that we have to manufacture by jumping around to different bible books but we can know and there's there's nothing wrong with jumping around to, to different bi- bible books I'm I'm all for it but in this case I think it's helpful to understand like hey this is really in the mind of Luke as he's telling us this story this is a, a kind of subplot that gives context to Jesus' ministry, and not only Jesus' ministry, but what he's teaching in Luke 21, and why Jerusalem would be destroyed, and why it's important to understand this is, there are two time periods that Jesus is prophesying, because the wrath and vengeance of God was prophesied to come on Jerusalem, and not just Jerusalem, but on those of Jesus' generation, And so, the wrath and vengeance of God would come upon Jesus' generation. We need to understand that that is firmly rooted in the gospel account of Luke, so that when we read Luke 21, we're not surprised by thinking like, oh, wow, why would Jesus be so interested in putting all this emphasis on the destruction of Jerusalem? Well, he was interested in telling us about the destruction of Jerusalem because one of the main... The subplots of the narrative is that the transgression would be completed by this generation, and that meant something. That came with consequence. Jesus is telling of the consequence of fulfilling and completing the transgression. God took that act with the utmost seriousness. And it had the most devastating consequence. So, here's what I'm talking about. Verse 13 from Luke chapter 10. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So, Jesus is giving woes to to the cities that are rejecting the gospel. He is saying that when the judgment comes, judgment day will be more tolerable for those cities that the Jewish people understood would be severely punished in the day of judgment. He's In, in, in uh, the gospel account of Matthew, Jesus even says it would be more tolerable in Sodom and Gomorrah than for you, Capernaum. Capernaum was the good guy city. Sodom and Gomorrah are the bad guy cities. Right, So when, when, when you or I or the Jewish people hear about Sodom and Gomorrah receiving the judgment of God, you're like, oh yeah, those guys are going to get it. Those guys are going to get like a double dose, right? Like those guys are going to get wiped out. Well Jesus is saying, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for Bethsaida, than for Capernaum which would be shocking to the Jewish people living in in that day. So, Jesus is saying it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than heathen nations that have been basically completely godless that were destroyed by fire and brimstone from heaven. It will be more tolerable in the day of judgment than for these Jewish towns that in Jesus's day seem to be okay, seem to be doing what they're supposed to be doing. That's just a small hint of what's coming. So now shoot forward to Luke chapter 11. Jesus is going to give another series of woes, this time not to cities, but to the Pharisees and the lawyers, those who studied the law. Jesus says in verse 46, he said, Woe to you, lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Verse 47, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of them they will kill and persecute. Verse 50 So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes. I tell you, it will be required of this generation. The generation that would complete the transgression would answer for all of the innocent blood shed since Abel. Let that sink in. Jesus is saying this in no uncertain terms. The generation that would reject and crucify the Son of God would answer for all of the innocent blood shed since Abel. This can mean nothing else than God would visit the generation that Rejected and crucified the Son of God with unprecedented vengeance and wrath. It's spelled out as clear as day. There is no other generation that would answer for this. The wrath of And vengeance of God for all of the innocent blood shed on the earth would be required of the generation that rejected and crucified Jesus. You've got to let that set sink in. This is firmly established in Luke's mind because it was firmly established in Jesus's mind that the transgression would be completed, the prophecy of Daniel 9 of the 77s, the 70 weeks, the completion of the transgression and the making of the atonement wrapped up in the crucifixion, the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, if we can understand that this is a foundational reality, then we can begin to look at Luke 21 and understand why it's important to Jesus that we understand that Jerusalem would be destroyed and why it would be destroyed. So let's go ahead and flip forward now to Luke 21 and just revisit a couple of these things so kick it off luke 21 verse 5 while some were speaking of the temple how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings jesus said as for these things that you see the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down Those there with Jesus were looking at the glory of the temple, the glory of the temple mount, the glory of Jerusalem, the walls, the the infrastructure, the architecture. They were admiring Jerusalem. And Jesus says, yeah, every one of these stones will be thrown down. Shocking statement. The Jewish identity was wrapped up in the temple of Jerusalem. That was the house of God. Yet Jesus is telling his disciples that the temple would be destroyed so thoroughly that there wouldn't stand one stone upon another when it was finished. The national identity of the Jewish people would be raised to the ground so thoroughly that none of it would stand. It was all coming down. Why was it coming down? We just have to back up just a little bit. Back in Luke 19, verse 41, Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. When he was walking up to the city, he drew near, saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you. And hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you didn't know the time of your visitation. And then Jesus really sums up the entire story of the completion of the transgression in a parable. In Luke chapter 20, verse 9, it says, He began to tell the people this parable A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants who went out and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he sent another servant but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus tells of a story of a man who owned a vineyard. He led it out to some tenants. And when the time came to gather some of the fruits from his vineyard, He sent his servants. Well, each of the servants, those wicked tenants sent away. Escalating the rejection, each servant would be rejected. Some of the servants would be beaten. Finally, the owner of the vineyard said, I know the only thing I can do is send my son. This would be the only way they will know. I'm serious that this is mine and that it's time to repent. But those wicked tenants saw the sun and said, this is our chance to kill the air and have the vineyard to ourselves. That is the story of the Jewish people. Jesus says, what would that What will the owner of that vineyard do? Well, he's going to come and he's going to destroy those tenants and he's going to give that vineyard to others. Well, that is the story that Jesus tells us happens in Luke 21. You got to go forward a little bit to hear the story of Jerusalem. Jesus says in verse 20, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That is the story of the parable that Jesus tells of the owner of the vineyard and the wicked tenants who killed his son. Jesus promises that God's wrath and vengeance would be visited upon the generation that completes the transgression. That is exactly what happened to Jesus' generation. Jerusalem was surrounded by armies. Jerusalem was raised to the ground by a pagan army. The vengeance and wrath of those days were so great that the Roman general who commanded the armies to destroy Jerusalem came back to Rome with a hero's welcome. They offered him the wreath of victory to celebrate subduing Jerusalem to Roman supremacy, the Roman general Titus refused to accept the wreath of victory. Why did he refuse the wreath? Because he said he was merely an instrument of the God of the Jews and his wrath against his people. Titus understood And God made sure Titus understood that what he accomplished was not against the God of Israel. It was not against Yahweh. Yahweh made known to Titus that Titus was merely a tool, merely an instrument of Yahweh. That's why he refused to read. He knew if he received that wreath, and pretended that he conquered the God of the Jews, he'd have trouble. The God of the Jews would make sure of it. The God of gods would make sure that Titus understood who he was. So Titus said, no, it wasn't me. It was the wrath of the God of the Jews against them. I was merely an instrument. And that is the story that Jesus tells of the fall of Jerusalem. And if you're wondering what I'm talking about, I encourage you to look at the historian Josephus, the Jewish historian Josephus, and read his account of the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., There can be no question of the fierceness of God's wrath and vengeance against a people as when you read the account of Josephus. God made the account of the fall of Jerusalem so abhorrent that if just to read it, you'll never forget. The incredible death, despair, terror, and horror unleashed in Jerusalem in those days. Don't take my word for it. I'll be like the guy from Reading Rainbow, Geordi LaForge, <laughs> when he said, Don't take don't take my word for it. Read Josephus, the historian, he'll tell you all about it. The fall of Jerusalem in eighty seventy, the vengeance of God, and how can we know that Jesus wasn't talking about? No, no, no. You know, there, I, you, there's many people would say, no, no, no. You got it wrong. It's not eighty seventy. No, no, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed again right before Jesus returns. I don't think so. I read Revelation eleven, where it talks about the seventh trumpet. I read about a people in Jerusalem who fear God and give glory to the God of heaven. Those are Jewish people in Jerusalem at the seventh trumpet. That is a turning of the Jewish people at the last minute in human history before the seventh trumpet blows. The Jews are not dispersed again. The t- the times of the Gentiles doesn't happen again. Jesus told us the parable of the man who owned the vineyard and the wicked tenants who rejected the man's servants and ultimately rejected and killed the man's son. What would happen to those guys who did that? The owner of the vineyard would visit those guys And kill them and hand that vineyard over to others. Well, that was exactly what happened to Jerusalem. The cornerstone was rejected, the chosen perfect stone upon which all else would be built was rejected by the builders. He was ridiculed, scorned, arrested, mocked, spit upon, stripped naked, whipped to almost his death, ordered to carry a cross through the streets of Jerusalem, nailed to an instrument of torture and died a criminal's death. That's what happened to the owner of the vineyard's son. What will the owner of the vineyard do to those who did that to his son? He will visit them with wrath and vengeance, kill them, and he will hand it over hand the vineyard over to others. The destruction of Jerusalem was God requiring the innocent blood of all the earth, beginning with Abel, and climaxing in the death of Jesus. He required it of that generation. That generation was 40 years after the death of Jesus, 70 AD. That was the generation that suffered unprecedented wrath. It is key that we understand that that is one of the two events that Jesus is telling us about in Luke 21. That's not the only event that Jesus is talking about. And it is also crucial that we understand that there are two events, and these two events are apparently separated by at least almost 2,000 years. One event is the destruction of Jerusalem. The other event is when Jesus appears in the clouds and everyone sees him. So this is generally this is generally how, how how most people get it wrong. They say either it all happened in 70 A.D. This is generally how most preterists land is that the the whole thing was fulfilled in 70 A.D. Yeah, not just the not just the destruction of Jeru- Jerusalem. But also the appearing of the Son of Man in the clouds. Okay, well yeah, I, I I get the destruction of the Jerusalem part. That's that's that that all makes perfect sense. I'm all for it. But Jesus also appeared in the clouds and everybody saw him. Oh yeah, it happened. It was metaphorical. Oh, he metaphorically appeared in the clouds because of apocalyptic language. Wrong. That's wrong. Jesus has not appeared in the clouds yet. I don't care what kind of apocalyptic genre expert you think you are. Jesus has not returned in the clouds yet. The other problem is to say, oh, 8070, 70, that was, that was quite a coincidence, wasn't it? That's weird, huh? Um, but that wasn't the main one. The, the main time uh, when Jesus, uh, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed is right at the end, right before Jesus shows up. That doesn't make sense either. That doesn't fit the narrative that Jesus is telling Jesus is telling us that the vengeance of God would visit the generation that rejected and killed Jesus. That's what he's saying. He's saying it repeatedly and he's saying it as clearly as he possibly can say it. So, no, these two events do not belong together. They don't belong, the the events of the destruction of Jerusalem and the appearing of the Son of Man do not belong together. Tied together in the same event, they don't belong in 8070 and they don't bl- belong in whatever it is 2070 either. Right? It's it, both events do not land in 8070 and both events don't land in 2070. One event is in 70 AD and the other event. I'm just making this up. I'm not picking a date. I'm just making it up for the sake of being clear. The other event would be 2070-ish. One, 70 AD. The other, 2070 AD-ish. It's imperative that we understand these are two separate prophetic events And that these two events are separated by thousands of years. If we can understand that, then we have a fighting chance to understand what Jesus is telling us in Luke 21. If we throw them all together, I think we're going to be confused. Because that's what I get a lot of times when I hear people throwing stuff together. It's a very confused, garbled message that really doesn't take the larger uh, narrative of the Bible at face value. To properly understand Luke 21 and the Olivet Discourse, you have to understand that there are two events that Jesus is telling us about. The first event is the destruction of Jerusalem that happens in AD 70. The second event is the appearing of the Son of Man in the clouds of heaven with great glory, which I believe is going to happen somewhere around twenty seventy ish give or take 50 years or whatever it is i you know i'm i'm not going to pick dates i'm just i'm just using 2070 for sake of argument because here's the problem with mixing those two events together either in 8070 as a preterist does or as conventional eschatology would would say that the destruction of jerusalem happens you know right at the end around the year let's say 2070 the preterist would say the destruction of jerusalem was fulfilled and jesus appeared in the clouds metaphorically in the language of apocalyptic writings well, that doesn't make sense. We all know Jesus didn't appear in the clouds. And as creative and as interesting an, an argument can be made, they have put them forward, but they all do not hold weight because Jesus did not appear in the clouds with the angels of heaven in great glory. It never happened. And so, the explanations are lame. You're stuck with lame explanations. So, if you're stuck with a lame explanation, just drop it and find a better one. Discover the, the right paradigm so that you're not stuck with a lame explanation. The other option is to put both events at the end and say... Well, G, uh, Jerusalem uh, is going to get destroyed again, even more so than it was before. And so the destruction of Jerusalem in eighty seventy was just a type. It was a foreshadow of the real destruction that's coming. Well, the problem with that is that then you have another diaspora, another expelling of the Jews from the land, and you have... The times of the Gentiles beginning again, right? We know that the times of the Gentiles have been going on for the last 2,000 years. Paul goes to, to great pains to tell us of the, the, the veil that is covering the eyes of the, of the Jewish heart and mind so that the Gentiles can be grafted in. We are in the times of the Gentiles. It makes no sense. The times of the Gentiles would begin sometime in the tribulation period. That doesn't make sense either. So, the only view, in my humble opinion, that makes sense is that one event happened in AD 70. That was the destruction of Jerusalem. That was the promise of the vengeance upon the generation that would complete the transgression. That happened. 8070, it was nasty. But the other event of Jesus appearing in the clouds has not happened yet. That is going to happen too. So Jesus is telling us about two separate events, separated by thousands of years. If we understand that paradigm and apply it to Luke 21, we can go, okay, now we understand the different time periods. And so, just taking that, that paradigm, and I'm, I'm just going to wrap it up right here. and am just, just trying to give larger context to Luke 21 so we understand. These are the different time periods that Jesus is referring to. Jesus tells us about, let's say, uh, I don't know, five different time periods. The first one is not yet the end. Jesus says we're going to hear about... Wars and rumors of wars, but he says, don't worry, it's not yet the end. So, there's going to be a period of time that is not yet the end. And what is Jesus's message to those living in the time of not yet the end? Jesus's message to those living in those days is, don't be led astray in verse, verse 8. See that you're not led astray. Many are going to come in my name. Don't go after them. That's the message of those living in the days. Don't be led astray. Simple enough. Then there is the events of the end. Jesus says, well, what's going to kick off the events of the end? Jesus tells us in verse 10, the events of the end will be kicked off by nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, there will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilence. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So, Jesus is saying, the events of the end will be kicked off with global war, unprecedented natural disasters, and terrifying signs in the skies. Those are the things. So, the events of the end are those, those events. Global war, unprecedented natural disasters, and terrifying signs in the skies. But then Jesus also tells us of another time period. He says, there will be a final persecution when they're going to, you'll, you'll be hated by all nations for my name. And they're going to arrest you. And some of you, they're going to kill. This will be the final persecution. So we have three time periods so far. We have, number one, the not yet the end. It's not yet, not the end yet. Don't be led astray. Then we have the events of the end, which is global war, unprecedented natural disasters, and terrifying signs in the heavens, and a final persecution. What's Jesus' message for those living in that day? Jesus' message to them in that day, who live in that day, is, hey, when they come to kill you, they're going to ask you for a testimony, and that is going to be your opportunity. That will be your opportunity. And he says, now, the message for those living in that day is endure and don't worry about what you're going to say. I'll take it from there. Jesus promises, you don't even have to, you know, think about what you're going to say when they ask you for your testimony. Jesus is saying, I will speak through you and I'll give you wisdom that your enemies cannot withstand, cannot contradict. He says we will be hated by our own relatives, betrayed by those closest to us. Why? Because the name of Jesus will be the most hated name on earth in the final persecution. And what is Jesus's promise to those who trust him in that hour? He promises not a hair of your head will perish. You will walk through that day. You will walk through that door. And when you walk and get to the other side, walk through that door and look at yourself in the mirror, you will see you're not missing a single hair on your head. You are fully intact forever more. So I, you know what, I, I probably need to come back maybe one more time and kind of get into the nuts and bolts of these different time periods. I'm probably pushing too hard and pushing too much into this episode. I probably should just leave it with the context of understanding the two different events of Luke 21. Um, so i Next episode, I'm planning right now in my head, and you, you never know how these things work out, but to come back to Luke 21 a little bit, discuss the different time frames that Jesus describes in Luke 21, and I'll just give you the list of them right now as, as far as I can see them. The time periods are these, not yet the end, number two, the events of the end, number three, The final persecution. Number four, the destruction of Jerusalem. Number five, the times of the Gentiles. And number six, the appearing of the Son of Man in the clouds with great glory. Those are the, I guess there's, I I say five, I guess six time periods that are specifically and clearly stated in Luke 21. And I believe this will build a framework in which I can then jump into Matthew 24 and look for these same time periods because the Olivet Discourse, the Olivet Teaching, the teachings of Jesus to his disciples during this Olivet Discourse is was the same fundamental message. The message in Mark 13 and, and, and Matthew 24 isn't a different message than the message of Luke 21. These three accounts tell of the same account. And so if we can understand the order of, of Luke 21, we can then apply the order of Luke 21 to the richness of Matthew 24 and have a working framework with which to understand what Jesus was teaching in the Olivet Discourse. Oh, I feel like I... I don't even know if I got to what I wanted to get to. I don't even know what I had in mind initially, but I feel like I just hope the Lord had his way in this episode. I hope you received from the Lord. I hope you were encouraged. I hope I hope you're fired up to dig into the Bible. I, I hope you take issue with me and, and want to find out for yourself. I'm not telling you, I'm not telling you what to believe. I'm not telling you. How you should understand what Jesus is Jesus' is teachings. I'm not I'm not telling you anything. I'm sharing with you what I've seen in the Bible. And I encourage you to look for yourself. Look for yourself. Dig into the Word of God. It is the most important book in the world it has the most important truths in the universe there is no greater way than you can that you could spend your time than by seeking god through the word of god through reading your bible and prayer so i'm going to leave it there and i'm just going to encourage you saints as we look toward that day when jesus will appear in the clouds with his angels, that we will be watching, we will be praying, and we will be proclaiming that Jesus is King. That concludes this episode of Babylon Singularity. I want to thank you for tuning in. If you're looking to hear more from me, you can find me on Twitter as well as my website, babylonsingularity.com. I've also authored a book titled Babylon, available on Amazon. I look forward to hearing any thoughts or feedback, comments that you may have to help me make this show better. I do hope it's a blessing to you, and I hope that you'll tune in next time to Babylon Singularity.